Now, some of you may know and some of you may not know, I used to ride motorcycle. I didn't do it for very long. I never got very good. But hadn't, I always thought it was something I wanted to try. And so um, in California, there is a motorcycle class you can take. It's put on by the California Highway Patrol. And how they advertise it is even if you've never ridden a motorcycle before, you could come into this class, and by the time you are done, you will be able to pass the motorcycle test. And that was me. I said, if I'm going to learn how to do it, I want to learn how to do it right. And so we spent Friday night, all day Saturday, and and all day Sunday uh, learning how to ride motorcycle. Now, the thing was, most of the people taking this class were just taking it because it's the easiest way to get your license if you have the time for the weekend. You don't have to go to the Department of Motor Vehicles and take the motorcycle training test. The whole thing is kind of leads you right up to the test, and they do the test right there, and you're just done. You can go all the way from getting your permit to, to having your license in, in three days. But for me coming in, never having ridden before, I had to completely unlearn what I thought I knew about motorcycle riding. For example, the only thing I had ridden close to a motorcycle was a bicycle. And so I put my bicycle thinking into my motorcycle riding just in my imagination of what I thought it would be. So on, on the uh, handlebars of the motorcycle, there's two levers. And on my bicycle, those are both brakes. That's not how it works on a motorcycle. The left side is a brake. The right side is the clutch. But coming from a car, I thought the clutch would be down at the foot. Well, no, it's the clutch up here, and then you shift gears with your right foot. But the left side is a brake, your front brake. Rear brake is your left foot. So I had to completely unlearn that. It's like brakes on my left changing gears on my right. And that's just not how I thought motorcycles would work in my imagination. I even had backwards which way the throttle goes. To, to, to go faster on a motorcycle, you ease back. But in my mind, to go fast, you go forward. So I, my thinking was just completely backwards on motorcycle riding. And so I spent the whole first day just trying to realign my thinking so that I could go and I could stop because I wanted to break like this, not like this. And I wanted to go fast like this, not like this. My thinking was just backwards. I, and, and I passed the test. I, I barely passed the test. When they told me, they announced all our scores as, you know, as we're sitting there as a group. And when they told me I got a 76, everybody went, yay, because they knew I was having the hardest time. But I made it through. And sometimes we have to correct our thinking, you know, because what we believe doesn't exactly match reality. That was my motorcycle thinking. And we should have or we should want correct thinking. And sometimes we have to correct our thinking because the concepts, the things that we think are true are not exactly the way the Bible says they're true. 
Because God's ways are higher than our ways. And God's thoughts are above our thoughts. So just because we think this is the way it should work, sometimes we need to look and say, oh, do I need to correct my thinking on this? And this is something I've done over the last couple of weeks. I've had to correct my thinking on something. I want everybody to grab a pencil or a pen. There should be some of your bulletins. And grab your bulletin because I want you to finish. I want you to write down this word or write down a word. that you come. You've got to finish this sentence with a word or phrase. Contentment is measured by how much we what? Contentment is measured by how much we You know, the dictionary definition of contented is this. Feeling or showing satisfaction with one's possessions, status, or situation. And so we have to ask ourselves, well, does this Webster's definition, does that match with the biblical definition? Because if we look at the Webster's definition, we would answer that by saying, contentment is measured by how much we have. And you may have put that. And that's okay. That's the definition. Or we might have said, contentment is measured by how much we want. That's also a valid definition. If, if, if I want a lot, then I'm not contented. But if I don't want a lot, then I'm contented. We might even have said, contentment is measured by how much I need. If I'm in great need, then I can be discontent. But if I'm not in great need, then I would be contented. Those all fit with Webster's definition. But we need to align our thinking with the biblical definition, which is this. Contentment is measured by how much we give. It's like figuring out where the brakes and the accelerator are on the motorcycle. When I saw it, contentment is measured by how much I give. But that is exactly what the Apostle Paul is showing us in Philippians 4, 10 through 20. Now, normally when uh, I would teach this, the tendency is to talk about the Apostle Paul's contentment. We're not going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about the contentment of the church. Our contentment. Because that's also in this passage. Philippians 4, starting in verse 10, says this. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that once again you renewed your care for me. You were in fact concerned about me, but lacked the opportunity to show it. I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know both how to have little, and I know how to have a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, well, whether in abundance or need. I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Still, you did well by sharing with me in my hardship. What's Paul saying about this church? This church started off as discontent. They are discontent with their inability to give. They're discontent with their inability to give. The church in Philippi had this great concern for Paul. Similar to what we talked about with the Good Samaritan last week, this concern for somebody. It's not the same word, though. 
The Samaritan was motivated with by emotion, that stirring from deep in his in his self. And this is talking about it's similar in that it's directed attention for somebody else's advantage. Said we we have this great concern, we want to give advantage to Paul. But it seems for a time they didn't have the opportunity to act on their concern. Paul still had the needs, but the church didn't have the means to meet those needs. They knew Paul needed support, and they didn't have anything to give them. And so they're discontent. If anything we can call holy discontent, it's this. I want to do something good, and I can't. But Paul says to them that they are still helping him in an emotional or spiritual way and that they're sharing with him in his hardship. He says, I know you, church, you understand the situation that I'm in because you're in the same situation. And Paul says, I gave you spiritual gifts when I was there, and you sharing in my suffering is a spiritual gift to me, even though you don't have money to give me. I know you're with me. But the desire of the church was to give him more than just spiritual gifts. They wanted to help with the physical needs of Paul. And for a time, they couldn't do that. Now, when when uh, Elizabeth, you know, about a year or so ago, she was, you know, still breastfeeding and just drinking milk, there would be times when she would be with me, but she wanted her mom. She wanted to be at her mom's breast. But mom wasn't there, and it was just me, and all I had was a bottle. Now, she could drink from the bottle, but sometimes she wasn't hungry wasn't the thing. She wanted to be on mom. And so she's probably going to hate this song by the time she's 16 because what I would sing to her at those times is the song from the movie The Five Heartbeats, I got nothing but love for you, baby. That's all I had. I couldn't give her the breast. Didn't have one. But I could share with her the emotion. And that's the way the church is feeling with Paul. Paul, I got nothing but love for you, baby. I want to give you more. Think of Jesus as he looked over Jerusalem and he mourned over the people. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 27, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way the hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Now, what had Jesus done for the people of Jerusalem? He had given them miracles. He had given them teachings. He had given people food. But he still desired to give them more. He says, there's so much more I want to do for you. And when the time was right, he would give more. He would give his very life to those people. His perfect life given to pay the price for every human being's imperfect life. But at that time, he's like, there's so much more I want to give you. But it's not time yet. 
you know, in the history of this congregation, despite what size we may be, this has been consistently a generous church, a giving church that financially gives to further the word and the good news of Jesus Christ, not just here, but throughout the world. That's a good thing. Now, individually or corporately, there may have been a time in somebody's life, or there may even be a time in this church where we don't have the means. We don't always have the means of what we want to do. Don't be discouraged by that. But do be discontent. Don't be discouraged, but do be discontent. Remember that the spiritual and emotional gifts, those do count. Those absolutely count. Praying with people, spending time with people, giving encouragement to people, that counts. Sharing in people's suffering, that counts. But we need to remember that when God provides for us our finances, we can go back and do that other work as well again. See, contentment is measured by how much we give. Paul goes on in Philippians, starting in verse 15. He says, And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my needs several times. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit I, that, is increasing, that is increasing to your account. But I have received everything in full, and I have an abundance. I am fully supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you provided, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. So before, the church was discontent with their inability to give, but now they are content with their ability to give abundantly. They found contentment because they could give abundantly. Paul states that they have renewed their care for him by the time he's writing this letter. See, in verse 10 that we read before, it's implied that they used to give, but then they had to stop, and now they've begun again. In fact, he says at one point in his ministry, Philippi is the only church supporting Paul. And they sent gifts several times. But something happened where they had to stop. But now Paul is thanking them again because their latest gift is an abundant gift. He says, I am fully supplied. Not by their gift to him, he says, but by their gift to God. You gave a gift to God and now I'm fully supplied. Now why did they have to stop? Crop cycle? church life cycle? I have to admit, I'd have to speculate. But I think I have a really good guess. Let me tell you a story. Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas travel to Philippi. And the first people that they preach Jesus to are these ladies. And one of the people that comes to faith in Christ is a woman named Lydia. She's a merchant. She sells purple cloth. So she's, she's a head of the household. And she comes to faith in Jesus Christ. She's the first person, the first part of the church in Philippi. 
And from there, Paul and Silas go to preach in the marketplace. And in the marketplace, there is a little girl who is demonized, and she's interrupting their preaching. And so they release this girl from demonic oppression. And the owners of this slave girl, they get mad about that because they can make money off a demonized girl. They can't make money off a healed girl. And so Paul and Silas are publicly beaten and thrown in jail by the merchants and city leaders. So there they are. They're in jail. And that night, they're just singing praises to Jesus. And there's an earthquake and all the chains fall off of all the prisoners. But they don't escape. They stay in jail. The jailer or the warden come in and see that everybody's loose, but nobody escaped. They stayed. Because if they had all escaped, he would have, that would have cost him his life. And because Paul and Silas stayed in jail, he comes to faith in Jesus. His whole household. So the household of Lydia comes to faith. The household of the jail warden comes to faith. And the next morning, word comes down that Paul and Silas are to be released from jail. They send a note, let them go. But Paul demands a public apology. He says, you beat us in public and we didn't deserve it. So now release us publicly so everybody knows what you did. And they do that for Paul. And then they leave. And apparently what we see from Philippians, Paul is apparently sent away and supported from a time from the church in Philippi. At least Lydia and the jail warden. But what would happen to those two people once the other community leaders and business leaders find out that they're following Paul who took away their demon-possessed money getter and publicly humiliated their governmental leaders by making them apologize publicly. They probably start to lose some business. Think about it. What if our district superintendent came to Oakdale and even though they may have deserved it, decided to publicly humiliate the Oakdale Area Chamber of Commerce. How would we as a church be treated after that for a while? Not very good. And so, like I said, I'm speculating, but it just makes sense to me. These wealthy people came to faith. They're supporting Paul, but then it comes back. You're supporting that guy that did us dirty. I don't think I'm going to do business with Lydia anymore. And so now, for a time, the church can't support Paul. They can barely maybe support themselves. But now when we get to Philippians, he says they're supporting them again. What happened? I have to guess again. But... People just generally don't get new jobs or raises at this time. 
the first part of Acts 16, verses 4 and 5, tells us what happens when Paul goes to a city and starts a church. It says, while they are, now this is, this is right before he gets to Philippi, but I think the pattern probably continued. It says, while they were passing through cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. When Paul comes through a town and preaches, he strengthens the church and the church grows in numbers. They didn't get new jobs. They didn't get new raises. They probably got more Christians. And then we could start supporting Paul again. In fact, we can support him abundantly now. In uh, John 4:35. My small group, we talked about this on Wednesday. Jesus says to his disciples when they're in Samaria, Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes, look on the field. They are white for the harvest. One of the things we looked at, he says, Jesus was talking about the people. He wasn't looking for more money for them to harvest more food. He says, there's people out there. There's more people that can be part of the church. Matthew 9, 37 and 38 says, He told his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers to his harvest. Evangelism is a key to contentment. Because the more we give Christ, the more we give his life, the more we have to give. contentment is measured by how much we give. They gave Christ and then they were able to give more. In the last couple of verses, verse 19 and 20, Paul says, And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Contentment is also knowing God will supply all need. Paul tells him, he says, God's going to supply all the needs of the church. Because God isn't in a life cycle that goes up and down. His riches and glory don't depend on how other business people treat him. His riches are in glory, are in Jesus, are continually growing forever and ever. And he ends it with an amen. And that's the truth. You know, just about a week and a half ago, I I looked on an order that I received from Amazon and I said, that's, I don't think that's my credit card. And, and so I went in and looked on the order and it was my mom's credit card. I was like, oh, this is a mistake. And I realized when my mother was in town, she wanted to buy something. And so we put her credit card into my Amazon account. And Amazon defaulted that to everything on Amazon. I was like, ah. So 
I, I went through and I checked all my orders back to when we put in the credit card to see what got charged to my mom and reset everything back the way it was before we put in that card. And it turned out to be three orders total, about $24. So once I got all straightened out, I called up my mom. I said, I owe you $24. Uh, she said, what's going on? I explained to her that her credit card got defaulted to everything on Amazon. And she said, well, what did you order? I said, I ordered a couple books and some cat food. And she said, it's a gift for the cat. She just made it a gift. I've got that. That's not going to break me. not going to overdraw on $24 for some cat food and some books. She had the supply. Now, my mom doesn't have unlimited supply. She didn't say, yeah, just leave my credit card for the default for everything. <laughs> but that's what Paul is saying about God. He says, he's going to supply all your needs. He's got it. Leave his credit card on your account. And the things that Jesus supplies, remember that the church wanted to supply, they were supplying both spiritual things to Paul and physical things to Paul. Jesus supplies the spiritual. The verse we all know, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. In 1 John 2, 2, he himself is the satisfaction for our sins, and not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. On the cross, Jesus has got it. Got it covered. Supply all your needs. And Jesus supplies the physical. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, For this reason I say to you, don't be worried about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body, what you will put put it on put on it. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth much more than they? It goes on. God's going to supply all our needs. He supplied all our spiritual needs on the cross. He will supply all our physical needs. We're important to him. And contentment is measured by how much we give. Now about you know, several months ago, Jennifer and I went to the first uh, banquet to support uh, Tubman. And it was different. Uh, we, we thought we knew what to expect because we had been to fundraising banquets before. Um, this was a whole different crowd than we'd ever been with before. Um, there was a live auction, and people were bidding thousands and thousands of dollars for stuff. I mentioned this to, to my Sunday school class last week, and, and Susie said, oh, well, at the New Life Family Services Banquet, one year there was a vacation trip to Wisconsin, and people bid a lot. And I said, at the Tubman Banquet, there was a vacation trip to France. And as we sat there, my wife and I looked at each other and we said, this is not our crowd. We don't have that kind of money. But we did give what we could. No, we're not going to France. What do we as a church have to give? You know, we give our facility. 
We're not the only ones that use this. We certainly give our money, both to missionaries and to local stuff. We give our time. And the most important thing is we have the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ to give. And with that especially, we've got to be righteously discontent. Because we can never give enough of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, today, we thank you for what you have given us. You have supplied everything we need for life and godliness. I pray that we take hold of that. But not to keep it for ourselves. Lord, put in this church a holy discontent to share. To share the physical things that we have with others and to share the spiritual gifts that you have given us with others of which there is no endless supply. We pray that you grow this congregation of your church not by just some big monetary gift, but by lives. And let us be good stewards of these lives. So Lord, I pray for a holy discontent in this church. And we ask this in your name. Amen.